Hello, hello everyone. This is Heather. This is Kara. And you've tuned in to I'm Not Complaining. I'm just asking. It's our podcast. Now, I don't know about you guys, but we watch the block of Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy every weeknight. Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> Yes. So, in our market, they show Wheel of Fortune first, and then Jeopardy. A friend of mine, she moved, and she said that their market shows Jeopardy, and then Wheel of Fortune. That's not right. Which I don't think is right. I feel like Wheel of Fortune warms you up to get ready for Jeopardy got to get those brain juices flowing for those puzzles yes that you got to see pat and man of white walk across the stage and turn those letters but now it's touch screen so i guess pressing the letters i guess is it a prize puzzle is it a toss-up are you going to get on the express <laughs> It's not even a real choo-choo sound. I, it, I, is it a bankrupt? Is it a $10,000? Is it $1,000? We don't know. And then there's the slice um, that is a million, but you don't win a million dollars. You win the chance at the possibility of putting the million-dollar wedge on the tiny winner circle bonus round spin yes so yeah everybody has their own strategy and heather and i have discussed at great lengths about how we would not be able to be in the live studio audience because pat always reminds the audience don't shout out the answers and what do we do at home shout out the answers we shout it out whatever our thought process is we soundboard off of each other sure and then also, Wheel of Fortune, if you guess, no, I'd like to solve the puzzle, and you guess what it says on the board, and you have the phrase correct, but you mispronounce a word. Or you add an S. You don't get it. No. They go, no, wrong. Next. There's, I'm sure there's a super cut on... YouTube of people who have mispronounced something and lost the game. One that springs to my mind is um, the college, the college episode. episode and the prize puzzle. The answer on the board was fi totally filled in and the guy goes, I'd like to solve. Go ahead. Mythological hero Achilles. <clears throat> no. The person next to him goes, well, I'll solve it. Go ahead. Mythical hero Achilles. That's it. You've got it. I mean, that's so lame. I don't but, think that's right. But he, that's not the correct word. So how could you give it to him? I guess. He did pronounce it the way it was spelled, though. I will give him that. But another joy about Wheel of Fortune is the South Park episode. <laughs> <laughs> where Randy Marsh is on Wheel of Fortune. 
Oh, he has the same problems. So, so sometimes your brain fills in letters that are incorrect. Yeah. And I know I do that. And Heather will look at me and go, no, that's not it. It's this. Yeah, there was one episode of Wheel of Fortune where this woman, I don't know if she was a florist or what, but every puzzle she, I like to solve. And she would guess names of flowers and it was just like what are you doing that's not the category no and so the the whole like it was missing like a couple letters and she buzzes in and they go i'd like to solve okay go ahead greyhound poppies no the person next to him uh i'll solve it yeah greyhound puppies yes and then it was child television show or something was the category. And some of the letters are filled in. And she buzzes in. I like to solve. Okay, go ahead. My little peonies. <laughs> I remember that one. I heard that and I said, what the, what's a peonies? <laughs> yeah, person next to him buzz in. Uh, I'd like to solve my little ponies. Yes, you got it. It was like, what? The thing about Wheel of Fortune is that it gives you a general clue of what the puzzle is. Yeah. There's a theme. It could be person, place. No, there's all sorts of subcategories, and sometimes they do try to trick you. But if you win and you're going to the final tiny wheel, final spin, all by yourself... Never choose the category on the map. Because it's That's any place the, in the entire world. And sometimes it's it's terminology that map makers use for making maps. Which is really uncool. Sometimes it's like a tiny lake. Yeah. Or a peninsula. It's never like Atlantic Ocean. No. Australian coast. Yeah, it's it's just... Panama Canal. There's just like no... It's a total grab bag. It could be literally anything. So that's the worst. So at least if the category is like food and drink, I mean, that narrows it down somewhat. I enjoy the team episodes more than the individuals because... You can tell that there are people that really are into Wheel of Fortune and they are really good at guessing puzzles. And in order for them to get on the show, they had to pick a friend or a buddy to get on. And they don't let them say anything no. or guess anything. And then there's others where there's too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah, they have to whisper and discuss before every decision. They're like, eh, time's up. Or you have to... You have to play the whisper game, and you're so close together. Yeah, you, the other team hears you. And if you don't guess the type, guess what? You just told the other team the answer. Absolutely. There was I, an episode one time where a person kept guessing letters or guessing to solve when it wasn't their turn, and Pat's just like, it's not your turn. Like, oh, I forgot. Which, I mean, that'd probably be me. 
because I'd be like, I'm used to just screaming stuff out at home and just losing everything. We do have an appreciation for the set designers and builders when they do uh, cities around the U.S. The people who um, do the art direction in the show are very talented. They always bring it. It's always a really cool themed set. Uh, they do a great job. Who picks out all of Vanna White's dresses? Well, usually at the end it says that the clothing company that she's wearing sent them the dress for free. It's like a part, you know, sponsorship type deal. Do you think she deal. gives it back after she wears it? Yes. That's usually standard practice, I think. Um, I like how they do the flashback before the final puzzle. Oh, yeah. They do back in 85 or 91. Can you guess the puzzle? And sometimes you're like, oh, it's so easy. And then sometimes you're like, no, I can't. No idea. I like the carousel of cars that they give away. And my favorite one that they gave away was the pair of Mini Coopers. Oh, yeah. And it was to a pair, a team, and the prize puzzle was colorful ponchos. Oh, yeah, that was the final winning phrase, yep. So when Wheel of Fortune is all wrapped up and done, then comes on the theme for Jeopardy. And so Jeopardy, you gotta get serious now. Pay attention, because here comes Alex Trebek with the categories. And I like that during this time of quarantine, because they couldn't film new episodes, they went into the vaults of the catalog of shows that they filmed since the beginning, and they started showing really old episodes or best of episodes, and I thought that was great. I really enjoyed that. And then they did the champion episodes they did celebrity jeopardy episodes i thought that was a great uh programming decision on their part and, and i re really enjoyed it it's not always of the same time period yeah so we got to see ken jennings first episode and last episode we saw jeopardy james his first episode and his last episode and then they played Buzzy's first episode, mm -hmm. last episode, and then they showed the Champions Tournament that had all three of those people, mm -hmm. and then... And then Austin was in there. Austin was in there, and then they showed other champions from the way, 80s, yeah, way in the, beginning. the 90s, and they had <laughs> some championship tournaments that were hosted in Vegas, and it's in a huge arena. Mm -hmm. There's like, what? Five, eight thousand people. I mean, it's it was a big deal for sure. Live in front of studio audience, it was yeah, it looked massive. There was balconies, and I feel like the in studio audience usually for Jeopardy is pretty small. Well, it's gotten smaller. Yeah. Over the years, I do enjoy how they went from the bubble TVs that were mounted in yeah. the wall. And then it became like the touch screens. Yeah. Heather pointed out that 
the original Jeopardy facade was spray paint with glitter. Yeah. Which was always fun. And then also the signaling devices and where everybody, the contestants stand. And then, of course, Alex's persona with the mustache and without the mustache. Yeah. They showed the very first episode of Jeopardy that Alex Trebek hosted. And it was interesting because everyone, you know, of course the contestants, but Alex and the crew and the judges, it was just, you know, it was brand new. And so everyone was trying to get a feel for it. And what was interesting, um, they don't have this problem now because they figured out how to deal with it. Um, But the contestants would ring in on the question before Alex had finished reading it aloud. Um, Nowadays, um, they have a block on the buzzer that the buzzer will not accept the ring in until Alex has completed finishing the question. So when you see people nowadays just clicking furiously at the thing while he's still reading it and nothing's happening, that's why they they put a block on it and then they release it once Alex is done talking. And it's a good plan because in these first episodes, Alex is trying to read so fast because the contestants are getting impatient and they're buzzing in like when he's just not even halfway through the question because they're speed reading it up on the wall and so Alex is sweating he's trying his best he's out of breath and it was just it was so fun because it was all so new to everyone and everyone's so excited and so nervous and um, those episodes were a hoot. I really enjoyed that. I really enjoyed that he had to explain how the game worked. Yeah. Yeah, because why, why would you know? If you get a question wrong, it'll subtract money. And the studio audience, the horror, the horror and, and gas when someone got it wrong. Yeah. And you just saw them go into the red. It was like, oh, no. It's great. Yeah. One episode that they showed, a really early on one, where all three contestants, you know, for the final question, they write it in. Oh, and they bet it all. They all three bet all the money they had, and all three of them got the answer wrong. So everyone was at zero, and of course there was a huge reaction from the crowd, and so... Alex is sweating. He's got an earpiece in, so the booth is telling him quickly what to say and what the rules are. And so he's like, uh, I guess that all three of you go home with the money that you, you know, the champion gets the money they earned from the previous episodes. Uh, the two of you get, like, a consolation prize of, like, $200 or no, whatever no. it was. No, they didn't get anything. Oh, they didn't get anything. They got nothing. Oh, jeez. And they and we're going to have three new contestants yeah. from the next day. And so he's about to sign out. You know, I'm Alex Trebek. And someone off camera screams. What was the answer? Because Alex just said, oh, these are all wrong. But he never said what the correct answer was. And so Alex is sweating and he doesn't know. He has no idea what the answer was. The card. They were telling him in his earpiece. That it was wrong. And so 
Alex is looking around at the judges. He goes, I don't know. What's the answer? And so someone, you know, blah, 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 blah. And so Alex re relayed what the correct answer was. And it just went to black because I'm sure they ran out of time. And uh, that happens all the time. If you run over time, it's cut. And so it was just so funny. It was just like, it was so breaking new ground. Nobody knew what was going on. It also, was great. I thought it was interesting that you could only win for five days. And then after the five days, you retired. Retired. Which makes sense for an, a show just getting off the ground. You need new people. You need money to be able to give it away. So, you know, you shouldn't. Uh, yeah, exactly. A lot of rules have changed over the years, and I wonder when they changed them as the show became more popular. Because, as we know, for the Tournament of Champions, there are contestants that were on for months. Right. So Ken Jennings, uh, James Holsauer, um, Austin Rogers, yeah, they were on for quite a while. The audience is split. Some people really enjoy when people go on a long run, which I do. Um, and then some people feel like it's monopolizing and they don't like that they're running the table. It's split. I think it's great. Because how much could you possibly know? And it turns out a whole lot. And everybody has a different technique style. Some people go for the big money at the bottom first, and then they work their way up. Or they go across, or they stick with one category. Yeah. I really like it when somebody runs a category. I really thought it was hilarious when Jeopardy had a category about, was it football? And no one got any of the questions right. Nobody even rung in. No, they had no clue. They had no clue what football was. <laughs> they were just like, nope. But I love they go and talk to each one of the contestants. Oh, gosh. And they have to tell a story or a fact about themselves. They have to take a 30-second an anecdote about themselves. And some people just crash and burn. And it's funny. They also do the 30-second an anecdote on Wheel of Fortune. Now, Wheel of Fortune, I feel like the producers of Wheel, Wheel of Fortune really help the contestants beforehand to write out like a two sentence thing about their life. You tell me and I'll summarize it for you and try to try to memorize this in your own way because the Wheel of Fortune 30 second anecdotes I feel are really snappy. They're also in a very structured because it's your name, where are you from, yeah. what do you do, and usually say something about your family or yeah. whatever and the the iconic one that happened a couple of years ago was the guy saying that his horrible children and his wife, but we found, found out later that it was a joke that he had said all to all of his friends and family uh -huh. that if he ever got on that show, everybody's always so positive about their yeah. family that he would go in the opposite direction and see if they would cut it or not. Yeah. And of course they kept it in and it was pretty funny. Yeah. But the ones on Jeopardy... They, I, they don't give them any help. They just let them loose. And, and it's up to your person, the contestant's personality of what they do. And, and I feel like you're already having, you're under so much pressure of trying and nervous. Just make up, take the time 
and make up a 30-second little sentence to say about yourself. And that's it. Don't try to be, I don't know, I don't even know what to say. I mean, sometimes I feel like the things that people say about themselves on Wheel of Fortune isn't true at all. And that's okay. But that's fine. It doesn't matter. Because you're only on for that one show. Yeah, you don't get to cares? come back. So the the oh the Jeopardy people sometimes it's just it's agony. It's pure agony because these people have spent so much time just studying and studying that normal conversation has just been shoved out of their brain and they can't handle it. And it's just sometimes it's just Brutal. I remember this one woman at, you know, and Alex tries to help them out by reading off the card, like the beginning of their story. Like a keyword or phrase. Tell us about that. And it's just like, oh no. And so this, he goes, I see um, that when we called you to let you know you were on Jeopardy, a little incident happened before your phone call. So when we talked to you, you were a little, you weren't as, as excited as we thought you'd be when you answered the phone. And of course, the, the way I just said it is way longer than the way Alex said it. it was very succinct. But anyway, so the woman goes, well, yes. And it was like, oh boy, here we go. Well, yes, that's right, Alex. Um, well, you see, I live in a house and it's like, oh no. I live in a house and we have a backyard. It's not a very big backyard, but we do have a dog. And so sometimes I'll throw a tennis ball for the dog. He'll fetch it and bring it back to me. I will then throw it again and he will then retrieve it and bring it back to me. He enjoys it. So one day I was throwing the ball for the dog and the dog brought it back to me. and. I bent down to get the ball from the dog, but the dog, he's a golden retriever. Now, golden retrievers, they have a very long snout, and he was so excited that when I bent down to pick up the tennis ball, the long snout of the dog hit me in the face, and it really hurt my nose. I thought my nose was bleeding. It really wasn't, but it felt like it was. Anyway, at this exact moment, I hear inside the house that the telephone is ringing. I somewhat staggered into the house because of the pain in my face from where the dog had hit me in the face because, you know, I was throwing the fetch for the dog. And so when I answered the phone, I was a little discombobulated. And when it was the producers of your show telling me that I had been indeed accepted as a contestant on Jeopardy, I wasn't as elated as I might have been if I had not just been hit in the face. And the silence of the audience and the death stare of Alex. He's like, all right. Hey, Bob, how about you? Uh, it's just like, oh my gosh. And I get it because I'm like that sometimes. I give way too much information when something was really simple to, to say. That poor woman. It was like, really? The floor director couldn't, couldn't have just said cut and be like, look, lady, let's, let's shorten that to just one sentence. 
I can punch it up and write it in a way that it, you'll actually get a laugh. So let's take, let's pause for 30 seconds. Let me rewrite it for you. Okay, here you go. I mean, really? You had to leave that poor woman. That's her, the rest of her life is she got hit in the face with her dog and had to answer the phone. I mean, poor lady. And, that, and guess what? I freaking remember it because it was agonizing. And I've been her and I'm so sorry. I love the introductions for both shows when they show the, they do the tight shot. Oh gosh. And they say their names of like, and from. Walla Walla. Or. Uh, Kukamanga. Yeah. And they try to do something to the camera. They try to do like a heart hands oh. or some people try to do like the dab. The finger guns. The finger guns. My favorite, though, was Austin. He had mastered the art of pantomime. Yes. Well, I feel like in Austin's case, he has a natural ability for being outgoing. So when he was doing that, he was doing it with a confidence of this looks silly. I know it looks silly, but that's the fun of it. And I feel like people afterwards were trying to emulate that. Yeah. But they had no confidence in their movement. So it just felt so uncomfortable. And I felt uncomfortable watching it. Because they're like, in their head, this looks really cool, right? And it's like, no, it doesn't. Which, again, is why I don't dance in public. I think the straight to camera looking down the barrel mm -hmm. is already difficult as yeah. it is. Just, just if you don't have something specific that you, you practice in the mirror, yeah, you don't you need can just to smile. Yeah, and a lot of people are awkward in smiling. Too. Yes, it's just like when that camera gets on you, you just every worst fear and self-conscious thought you've ever had is like cranked to twenty. It immediately floods your mind. Yeah, it's like oh, my, one ear is higher than the other. Maybe if I lean my head, nobody will notice. It's like, what are you doing? What are you doing with your head? Nothing, nothing. Don't I look natural? It's like, no. It's smiling. Am I showing not enough teeth or too much teeth? Yeah, it's just terrifying. I feel I feel for these people. And it's just like, oh. I would do the Talladega Nights. I don't know what to do with my hands. Yeah. And I would slowly bring my hands up into frame. <laughs> and I would look at them like, what do I, what do, I do? That would be my jeopardy introduction go-to oh my gosh and then they, they say the buzzer technique you know when you're holding the buzzer um it's you know like a clicky pen almost um and so one of the things you if you watch the people's hands when they're holding it there's people that hold it with their finger touching the top of the buzzer but of course not yet pushing the plunger down and then there's people that hold it with their thumb hovering with a space of air between their thumb and the plunger. And so they say what you should do is you should have your thumb resting but not yet pushing on the plunger. Because when you think about it, it's all about timing. So if your thumb is way up in the air, that's just more time that it needs to travel to touching and pushing down the plunger. Also, I will add that it is illegal for you to use both hands. To push the force of the... Yes. 
You, you can have it in your right hand or your left hand. It's mm. non-specific, but I know for sure that you're not allowed to have both hands mm. on the buzzer. I would think that would be... I, I don't think that it would help you having two hands on it. I don't think it would make it any quicker. I think I think it's probably they tell you that because they have people breaking oh, the buzzer absolutely. because they're squishing it so hard. Absolutely. That would be, the, I would think that would be the reason. Um, it's not going to help you in any way and you're going to break the equipment. That would be my theory. And then some people hold the buzzer behind their back, which I don't get what that's all about. That's like a decathlon, the, not decathlon. Quiz, quiz bowl? Quiz bowl. Because you have to have one hand behind your back and oh. you tap the buzzer with your hand. Yeah. Kind of like a family feud style. Yeah. So maybe that's just a relaxed position for them. If they're already trained mm -hmm. to do trivia, mm -hmm. now they just have a buzzer in their hand. Yeah. That makes sense. But the trivia that came up in the episode the other day on TV, I was very confused. Yeah, so they had an entire category uh, dedicated to superstitions and idioms. So an idiom is a phrase or expression whose meaning cannot be understood from the ordinary meaning of the words within it. And then a superstition, of course, is something that you believe will give you good luck or bad luck. One of the superstitions that they said, which we had never heard in our entire life, it said, don't point at this or it will rain harder. And you think about it and you're like, well, the thing that makes sense would be a rain cloud. Or a rainbow. And so the contestant buzzed in and said, rainbow? And he goes, yes, don't point at a rainbow or it will rain harder. And Kara and I were like, I've never heard of that ever. And so that set me on a rabbit hole of looking, down, looking it up on the internet and I could find no record on the internet of that being a thing anywhere. Um, but what I did find was a whole website about idioms and their meanings and origins. Um, if you tuned in to our last episode of The Mighty Ducks, um, Kara tried to use an idiom. <laughs> like an idiot. <laughs> in the phrase where she tried to use the the idiom hand caught in the cookie jar and finger in the pies. Um, so Kara said, well, I don't know. Why don't you go look them up? So I have a list here of different idioms and their meanings and their origin stories. So Kara, I don't know how you want to do this. Do you want me to read you the phrase and you guess what it means? You know, podcasts can be somewhat revealing about about oneself. So, 
for the sake of the laughs and maybe the likes and the clicks, I will give permission for those of you out there to laugh with me. I know you're probably going to laugh at me, but that's that's okay. <laughs> that's all right. That's fine because I'm sure that there are people who have either never heard of these or they hear people use them, but they are too embarrassed to ask right. what it means. Right. And so even though I knew what the meanings of these were, I didn't know what the origins were. So um, even if you know what the meanings are, I think you'll be interested in the origins because they're pretty strange. I think everybody loves an origin story. With how successful all the Marvel films are, 75% of the films are origin stories. Yes. Okay, so we'll start with this one. So the phrase is, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. What do you think that means when someone says that? I feel like when people use that, they're saying, you're, lu- you're lucky to have them, you know? <laughs> you're lucky to have something. Oh, I, what does it mean? Okay, so it means having something that is certain is much better than taking a risk for more because chances are you might lose everything. Would you say that could be a strategy during double Jeopardy on Jeopardy? Yeah. Be content with what you have is essentially what it means. The origin using the birds in the idiom, the example is first found in 1450. John Capgrave, a story he wrote called The Life of St. Catherine and Alexandria. The allusion is to falconry, uh, where a bird in the hand, you know, on your glove, the falcon was a much more valuable asset. You should keep him with you. If we're talking about something from the 1400s, yes, you would train birds. Yeah. And have a bird and a falcon. Which I love the skit from Saturday Night Live with Will Forte as the falconer. Those skits crack me up. It's one of those classic things that make absolutely no sense. And the falcon's name is Donald. And they get in all sorts of terrible adventures. And it's ridiculous. I love it. Here's the other bird one that people use a lot. Killing two birds with one stone. What do you think that means? Crushing it. You see something small, pick up something big, and smother it, crush its dreams. <laughs> no. If you have a problem, find one solution. Essentially, you're on the right track. You kill two birds with one stone means to achieve two different goals with a single action. So, yes. But the first time it was you was written down was in 1656 by a man named Thomas Hobbes in a story called The Questions Concerning Liberty, Necessity, and Chance. Is it Thomas Hobbes? How, why was I not told this in any of my 
political science or government classes. Oh no. Thomas Hobbes is huge. Shout out to the big man. He is cited as one of the first people writing it down. It makes sense that he was a problem solver. There you go. Complex issues. So this one I've heard people use a lot and they don't know how to use this phrase. Like me. It's a phrase. The phrase is a chip on your shoulder. I feel like that's something that something happened to you and you've held on to it. Not necessarily it doesn't have to be a grudge but it's something that you cannot let go of and you are constantly reminded by other people of either what they're doing and you're like, oh, eh. And you're like, oh, what's that guy's problem? They, I guess they got a chip on their shoulder. That's 100% correct. Uh, being upset for something that happened in your past. The first date is 1739. In this era, a chip also meant a small piece of wood as it might be chopped or chipped from a larger block. That's what we start from, okay? So in 1739, the Royal Navy issued a decree that said shipwrights or shipmates are allowed to bring chips on their shoulders near dock gates to be inspected by officers. They have permission to remove surplus timber for firewood or building material for their home. So that would have been a huge deal. You know, free wood to do whatever you want with it. Right. For dock workers. So they were saying any piece of wood. So no matter the shape, you could take it and do what you will. So they would take the biggest piece that they could and hoist it over their shoulder because that was an easier way to carry a heavy thing, as you well know. In 1753, the Navy Board changed their mind and said the only chips that can be removed must be small enough to be carried under one's arm and no, uh, no other kind will be allowed to be removed. And so the workers went on strike because of this. And they started putting the big pieces of wood or chips on their shoulders and telling them, quote, are these not our chips? I will not lower them. So they're putting them on their shoulders as a defiant move. And it's like, wow, okay. And then further on, down the report, it says, told the guards that if they saw this, they were to immediately push the chips off their shoulders. And then that was a whole thing. So over time, it somehow morphed into meaning a belligerent attitude. And over time, there would be pub, this like pub tradition that if you were a big tough guy, like imagine Gaston in the pub, a real tough guy who likes to fight and stuff, if you were drunk and angry and you just felt like having a fist fight, which I guess according to old timey movies, you did, because men couldn't speak to each other, so they had to get their aggression out somehow, that they would straight up grab pieces of wood 
and literally put them on their shoulders. And if you walked around and you saw another dude that had a chip or a piece of wood on their shoulder, that meant I'm down to fight. To fight. To brawl. So just just find me. Just chef me. And we'll take it outside. And they would dare each other to knock the chip off that would would start the the brawl which i was like okay which brings me to this there was a commercial in like the 70s i believe where this movie star tough guy did a commercial television commercial for batteries i believe for duracell where he is looking at the camera and he places a Duracell battery on his shoulder and says to the camera, knock it off. I dare you. Duracell's the toughest. And I never understood what that meant, but it must be a callback to the barroom chip on your shoulder punch game. I mean, it's a long walk, you guys, but that's what it means. It's like, what? I guess it makes sense. I thought sense. that as you went through the history that yeah. you were going to talk about a chip off the old block, that those would be related oh, to each other. I didn't look which, that one up. Which a, which a chip off the old block is someone who is similar in character to their yeah. parent. Correct. Because they are made of the same stuff. <laughs> made of the same stock. <laughs> um, or chip, family tree. Or family tree. Yeah. The, the roots. Roots run deep. Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Yeah. Um, a chip off the old block is imagining your family is a block of something. I mean, I would guess, I'm just thinking in my head that it would be like marble statues where you know you have a block of marble and you chip away at it to make a statue. That would be my guess, but I don't know for certain. It might be from marble or it might be the family tree. Either way, it's from a larger piece mm-hmm. that is your family and you are a direct carbon copy. You are a piece of them. So that I mean that that makes sense. The phrase is apple of my eye. What Apples down. <laughs> what do you think uh, apple of my eye means? It's usually a sweet sentiment. Because it's the apple of my eye. I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest. This is one of those that People use the term all the time, and I am too embarrassed to ask what it means. So, when I looked it up, it's kind of one of those things that you know what it means. Yet you don't. But you can't define it. So, when I looked it up, there wasn't really a clear definition of it. And one thing said, oh, well, the apple of one's eye uh, refers to the central aperture of the eye. I'm like... That's not what we're talking about at all. And that's a pupil. Yeah. Whatever. So, and then the other thing said, it is something or usually someone cherished above others. A.K.A. it's the original Bay. B-A-E. Do you know what the anacronym of 
bay stands for. No, but I hate it when people refer to their significant other as bay. Because <laughs> I am not a fan of bay or bow or... It's weird. What's bow? Like, he's my bow. Well, that's really, really, really old. Who's saying that? Some people do. Oh, my gosh. But anyway. Bo is someone who's courting you. Yes. So that's fine. But Bay is an acronym that actually means bef- before anyone else. Oh. Which means that they think they think of this person whenever, before they do any sort of action or whatever they do in their life. They think of how this might affect their Bay, because they are the most important person in their life, which I think that's very sweet. But I feel like it's been lost in if translation. a twelve if a twelve year old's calling someone their bay, they're not really thinking of it that way. Or when you see at Target the Bay Watch that says, <sighs> and "That's just a clever be- play on words that they're trying to sell screen tea." So I'm not going to hold that against them, but. But yeah. again, it goes back to people use these words and phrases, and they don't even know what they mean. So the earliest use, the apple of my eye, was used by Shakespeare in Midsummer Night's Dream in 1600. And it also appears several times in the King James Version Bible in 1611. Oh. So that's how far back it goes. Wow. Yeah. Shakespeare just coming up with lines. Uh, he's, he's hitting it out of the park. Okay. So this other one, this other one, I never use this phrase because I don't 100% know the best why you would use it. And when people say it, they just throw it out there. I'm like, do you really know? I don't what think the... it means what you think it does. And that phrase is tongue in cheek. Okay. So this is a phrase that my poli-sci or political science teacher when I was a senior would use all the time and he used it so much to the point where the confused look of high school seniors Mm -hmm. he goes do you guys know what the hell I'm talking about and all of us were like no no I don't and so he said in politics, people say something instead of being, they're trying to be sarcastic, but acting serious. But you know that they are joking. So they're delivering it in a way that's, quote, tongue in cheek. You have to be smarter. You have to be. Sophisticated? Yes. It's like highbrow. You have to know and understand what they're talking about in order to get, oh, well, obviously he's joking. It's very tongue-in-cheek. And I think that's just, I don't like it. Just be sarcastic. Mm-hmm. So, the fr- like you that's absolutely true. It says, the phrase clearly alludes to a facial expression created by putting one's tongue in one's cheek sometimes also includes a wink and it may have been used to suppress 
laughter. Now the earliest example of this being used is in an 1842 poem by Richard Barharm and the, the poem was the Ingoldsby Legends um, in which a Frenchman character is inspecting the watch of his friend and he opens it and he sees a picture of a woman and he's kind of being a jerk because he sees the picture of the woman who apparently is unattractive and says, oh my God, she's so beautiful. You know, she's, oh my gosh, her hair is like this, you know, starts going on about how pretty this woman is and he's lying. And so he puts his tongue in his cheek to keep himself from laughing at his so own joke. It's like, why was that? What? Why? Why? Who are you? Just fix the watch, bro. I mean, it's just like nobody really? asked for your opinion. And then, so it goes on from after that poem was done and was popularized. Then, in live theater, if they had a joke that wasn't completely obvious that it was a joke, the actor would then do this action tongue and cheek and wink directly to the audience like eh? see it's funny right so that the audience would be like uh oh, i guess yeah he's telling me it's a joke so i suppose i should laugh because nothing's no joke is funnier than when you deliver it you then have to explain it <laughs> after the fact right keeping with the mouth uh there's a phrase that's called long in the tooth what do you think that means not really sure. Are we referring to people with bad teeth? I hope. Probably not. I don't know. Basically, it means whatever you're talking about is old. Like Long, old, old timey. Oh, no, just old as in the year, as in the age. <laughs> so the expression comes from, it's based on a fact about horses. So horses' teeth continue to grow as they age. They wear them down with use, but over time, they just keep growing. And so if you look in a horse's mouth, judging by their teeth, you can guess how old they are. Oh. So the first time this is uh, being used is in 1852. And it was from um, the author Thackeray and a story he wrote called The History of Henry Edmund. And he refers to a, a character saying that, that, that the human is long in the tooth. And I guess there were a lot of horses and you had to know a lot about horses back then. So people are like, oh, I get it. Because like the horse and the teeth and the age, I get it. It's like, oh, okay. And then it just continued for there so if you, if someone's really old like oh happy 80th birthday grandpa boy he's getting real long in the tooth hey i can still hear you so <laughs> uh keeping with the head there's a phrase called a sight for sore eyes well you're a sight for <laughs> sore eyes yeah i feel like people that use it are gen like generally excited 
to see that person, people who are coming back from being deployed, or maybe they were on, they moved away and they came back. Like, oh my gosh, I'm and I'm excited to see you, and you're a sight for sore eyes. <laughs> so, yes, absolutely. So, a welcome sight, someone or something that you are glad to see after a period of absence. Yes. Um, so, my guess was going to be something like, you know, someone's been gone at war or something like that, and so you've been... Crying? crying or mourning for the person and so when you they come back your eyes are sore because you would cr- have cried for them I could find no record of that whatsoever which was my guess um, but they say in 1738 is the first time it's used and it was uh, by author Jonathan Swift in a story and it just said it, he, he literally says the sight of you is good for sore eyes. End of sentence. Yeah, no explanation whatsoever. So maybe it's implied, um, but yeah, there you go. I mean, that was my guess, but I couldn't find anything to support that. But that's what I always thought. Huh. Uh, there's a phrase called get your goat or got your goat. Meh. Well, that's more of a sheep, I guess. <laughs> Some people refer to me as the goat. I have a hat that says goat. Which stands for greatest of all time. That's right. You know how to press that person's buttons. You know how to get under their skin. Meanwhile, and drive them insane. To explain this idiom, you're using a whole bunch of idioms. <laughs> Just so you know. <laughs> It's like, oh, I really got your goat. You're just infuriated. Yes. You're annoyed, and they just drive you crazy. Yes. Correct. They say that the first recorded use of of Get Your Goat or Got Your Goat is from 1904 from a book about slang terminology used in the prison sing sing whoa uh, yes uh and it, it was a slang term for anger and it was used in a story in 1909 talking about something that happened overnight in the city where a burst water pipe had you know broken and the paper had interviewed this plumber and he said oh boy wouldn't that just get your goat? We've been transferring the same water all night from the tub to the bowl and back again. And so it just went from there that get your goat means you're really annoyed and angry. Maybe because goats are temperamental and they headbutt people all the time. But really, there was no more explanation than that. I guess people were just like, I, I like it. I'll use it. No, 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 no need to explain. <laughs> I'm good. I got it. No mention of farm animals. What's it was just like? What? But hold on. And no. And now it lives, forever. I don't know anybody that's served their nickel, so I can't ask them if it's all if it's commonly used in prison. Still used. Oh my gosh. Okay. Keep it under your hat. What do you think that means? Well, I know in 
His Girl Friday when someone had to keep extra money or something important they put it inside the lining of their hat with that well, what do you think what it. do you think it means if someone says hey keep it under your hat nowadays keep it under wraps like keep it to yourself yeah don't tell anybody i'm letting you know but keep it to yourself yeah that's what it means and you're right um, about the movie, about putting the money in his hat, in the interior of his hat band to keep it safe. Um, the first recorded use of Keep It Under Your Hat is a story in 1793 called The Adventurer. And the quote is, a great quantity of gold might be conveyed just under his hat. So that story put the idea in people's heads that if you have something like money or a will or something that's you need is a value you should put it inside your hat to keep it a secret but at that point if that's what everyone thinks they should do then wouldn't everyone know that I, you keep money in I your think, hat and you could just go around knocking the hats off people's head and but just I think figure it out later. The point is is that you yourself, if you hit something of value in your hat and it's on your head, if someone tries to steal it, you will notice. Whereas like a pickpocket mm. or something like that, they could simply bump into you and yeah. steal it. That's true. Whereas in old-timey times... Men always wore hats, oh. women always wore hats, and it was pinned, mm -hmm. especially for women, it was pinned to your head. So, it makes sense that you, again, to use another old phrase, is keeping it, what was it, keeping it in close, the vest? Close, close to the vest. vest. Yeah, same type of deal. And then that you would notice, you would feel it if someone tried to take it or if they did that now you're talking about the weight of gold again another phrase the way <laughs> that if you put gold in your hat there would be a weight to it and you would notice that somebody took it out right it would feel different and then also if we're keeping the clothing uh the phrase the family jewels which nowadays refers to a person's nether regions um so the reason it's called that is because of a similar thing like way way back in olden times when men would wear like the pantaloons and they would wear cod pieces the men would put their valuables in the cod piece because they would be able to feel it if someone so that's why it. they started calling it <clears throat> referring to down there as the family jewels because you would put your money in your, your cod piece aka your jewels and that's how that came to be um yeah people are we're just we're just weird we're just we're just a strange group us humans i tell you um so one of the ones i looked up because i was like i don't really know the origin of and um that's the phrase Heard it through the grapevine. I heard it through the grapevine. Right. The Motown song by Gladys Knight and the Pips from 1967. And then, of course, Marvin Gaye in 1968. That's a song. But what do you think the phrase, 
heard it from, through the grapevine. Just what it means in everyday conversation. I think it would be gossip. Yes. Like the game Telephone, where one person tells another person, and then it's another person, and another person, that news travels fast. Yes. And it could be a rumor, or it could be true or untrue, depending on how the information got passed along. So that's exactly correct. And the first use of that was in 1844 when the first practical public demonstration of the telegraph with Samuel Morse sent a message from Washington to Baltimore. So that's when the telegraph started. Tell you that because in 1852, when the telegraph was, you know, being used in more places, the term grapevine telegraph started because of the wires that were used for the telegraph were coiled like the tendrils of grapevines. That's what they, when they saw the the cords, they're like, these look like grapevines. And that's how, that's how that was born. It's like, what? I would think if, if you've ever been to a winery or where they grow grapes or even an orchard or something like that all of the grapes are connected on a vine system Mm -hmm. so i would think that maybe because they're all interconnected they're all in the same vine system and then telegraphs are all connected down the line Mm -hmm. that would make sense to me flash in the pan we what does that mean when someone says that that they're super hot and then it burns out or fizzles out that it was it happens so fast and then it was poof it's gone yeah so pretty much it means something which disappoints by failing to deliver anything of value to, despite being very showy like a one hit wonder yes It was a flash in the pan. Yes. Something that has a lot of hype and it does not live up to the hype. Um, So there's two different origin stories for it. So the one that's the oldest is from 1687 and it's about flintlock muskets. So those have small pans to hold charges of gunpowder. Right. And an attempt to fire the musket in which gunpowder flared yes. up without the bullet being fired yes. was termed a flash in the pan. It didn't work. Made a lot of noise and a big fire, but it didn't do anything. So that's one. And then the other is from a writing in 1921 that refers to the California gold rush. Prospectors who panned for gold supposedly became very excited when they saw a glint in their pan only to have their hopes dashed when they found that it was not real gold. Like fool's gold. Yeah. So it was like a flash and then it didn't pan. And that also gave, it didn't didn't pan pan out. out. So there you go. I like it. Yeah. It works. Yes. It works. I'm a fan. (laughs) <laughs> okay biting the bullet um so i mean what it means when you're 
if you use it in modern times, bite the bullet means um, doing something that you don't want to do, but do it anyway. In endure the situation, uh, even though it's awful. Um, so my get right. Yes. Okay. Uh, so my guess for the origin um, would be huh, that a, a person would be injured and there were no, no painkillers. So to distract themselves from the pain while getting surgery or something, they would give the person something, something to bite on, either like a leather strap or a piece of wood or perhaps bite on an unused bullet? Is that what it is? How I learned it was actually, again, in history class, <laughs> was during the American Civil War. Right. You got shot or injured. If you didn't have leather or something to bite on, you would bite a bullet when they would go to fix you up. Yeah. Okay. And tend to the injured. Right. So it's something that, in a situation, you got to do it mm -hmm. as much as it's... That's what, gonna I, hurt. that's what I said. <laughs> Other idioms that I learned at school, I had a, I had some really great teachers that would use idioms all the time, and that when people were confused, they would look at you and go, oh, "Do you know what that means?" No, okay, I'll tell you. So, do you know what it means a person to have egg on their face? So using it in modern times, I feel like that's like you've done something embarrassing or in something embarrassing has happened to you. So similar to having like something, some sort of food stuck in your teeth like that and kind of embarrassment that you feel um, it, it, to have egg on your face is like something of embarrassment. That's the best I can do. The experience that I had was when people would get up to present in group projects mm -hmm. and they would stumble and mumble and have not prepared at all. And so they appeared ridiculous. It's just like, oh, look at you with your egg on your face. And it actually comes from terrible actors, stage actors, that would be pelted with eggs and rotten vegetables or tomatoes and therefore they would end up with eggs on their faces. That's horrible. That's not right. <laughs> They're just here for you, for your entertainment to bring some zazzle into your humdrum life. I mean, why don't you take that food home to your family? Why are you throwing it at people? Are you kidding me? That's I'm sure not right. the eggs were bad though. Oh, that's probably true saved them up that's why you have the rating system of rotten tomatoes that's true because you would throw rotten. you're not gonna throw good tomatoes right you're gonna throw rotten and tomatoes it's like um the beatles song with that ringo wrote what would you do if i sang out of tune would you stand up through tumultuous at me yes yeah and then joe cocker covered the song and just blew it out of the universe i mean that he does a fantastic rendition of that song but who wrote it ringo and the beatles so you know how about <clears throat> back to the drawing board when something really doesn't work you gotta go back to the drawing board 
Well, that means you got to start over because whatever you plans you had didn't work, and so I would assume that has to deal with arch- an architect or something like that. I'm pr- I'm pretty sure there's a similar phrase that call is called uh, going back to square one, and that definitely is a phrase that was from an architect using a blueprint because the blueprint paper has squares and you have to begin at square one. A design that has utterly failed and you need to completely get a new one. Yeah. So essentially scrapping it. You got to go back. Like you said, I started square one. Yes. Go back to the drawing board and a drawing board is like a drafting table. Yeah. One of my favorite idioms has got to be, well, cat's out of the bag. And people say that and use that for such a variety of things. Announcing that they're pregnant or that they're getting married, that they're engaged, or that they bought a house. Or something like they go, well, well, cat's out of the bag. And I'm just like, really? I don't think it means what you think it means. Because, yes, it its origin is that everyone has now found out your secret but that means that you didn't want to tell it that it was something that you were keeping to yourself and then someone found out and betrayed your trust so when someone says the cat's out of the bag I'm like so were you not going to tell everybody that you got married or got pregnant or are having a baby I'm very confused because the origin of cats out of the bag is when people would go to the market and buy animals specifically pigs the merchant would then bag it up live and people would get home and unbox or unbag the pig and they realized wait a minute I paid for a pig and there's a damn cat in here and then the cat of course and run away and it would go out of the bag because it was a common practice that when you were purchasing stuff as soon as the money was exchanged they would then give you a package with something else in it it's crazy other than what you paid for and then the cat would be <clears throat> out of the bag and it was surprise yes yeah. you've been duped and ripped off so talking about cats so in elementary school we had an assignment i'm sure it was a rainy day so they needed something for us to do we had an art assignment where you chose an idiom and drew out what the idiom was oh no i don't i have no idea what i drew i do not remember but there's two people that I remember theirs. And one was a girl and she took a lot of time drawing it. And it was a good drawing. And so, you know, the teacher went around and of course you have to explain your drawing. But she would guess what the phrase was being illustrated. This is not gonna go well. No, it was horrible. So, like I said, I've blocked out completely what my experience was, cause I can't draw at I all. Think, I think, Heather, I think you and I have about the same skill set for artistic capabilities as in we have none right (laughs) so 
the girl, she was very talented at drawing. And so the picture, there's a cat and then a foot. So the motion of the foot was like, the, it was kicking the cat and the cat was flying through the air. And the teacher was just looking at it and she goes, I have no idea. What, what is this? I know it's a cat, but what's the phrase supposed to be? And the girl goes, oh, you know, kick the cat. And everybody was like, what? that's not a phrase. What do you mean? I mean, even if she meant in her head, kick the can, but that's not a phrase. That's an old timey game that you would play like like stickball. Like stickball. You would or, use garbage as a game. Or you're pushing the, the the wheel. Yeah, with a stick. The stick in the hoop. What are you talking about? Kick the cat? And the, and the teacher's like, what does that even mean? How would you say kick the cat? And she's like... Is that like beating a dead horse? Yeah. I don't even remember her explanation, but it was like, okay, that was a disaster. Never mind. Moving on, and then this boy, I remember his, and it was a field, a tombstone, a lump, you know, of fresh dirt where a body would be buried, and there are flowers around the grave. A little person drawn next to the tombstone. And it was just like, oh, jeez, oh my gosh. Okay. Wait, let, me, let me. Can I? Can I try and guess? Sure. Walking amongst the tombstones. Nope. And the teacher pushing daisies. Right. So the teacher. That's what the teacher said. She was like, "Wow. Okay." Um, pushing up daisies. And the kid looked at it. And he was like, "Huh. Oh. Yeah. I guess it could be. Huh." She's like. Whoa. What was it supposed to be? He goes, oh, um, like he didn't want to say. Oh, and no. she's like, no, it's all right. We'll say it. He goes, oh, um, I spit on your grave. like never doing this assignment ever again oh my gosh it was, I on that lovely note this has been I'm not complaining I'm just asking for you to explain commonly used <laughs> phrases to me that obviously I have no idea how to use them you know what at this point it's water under the bridge Thank <laughs> you.